Good morning. In today's headlines, an act of protest during the UN General Assembly with swift repercussions. So find out why Israel's ambassador was detained yesterday. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland is in the hot seat on Capitol Hill today with the spotlight on the DOJ's indictments of Hunter Biden and former President Trump. Just like 9-11, a former Capitol Police chief says there was a failure to connect the dots on January 6th. Lawmakers hear details on alleged security failures. Hunter Biden is expected to plead not guilty to federal gun charges after being indicted for lying on a federal gun form. More on the younger Biden's mounting legal issues. As the United Auto Workers Union pushes for higher wages by striking, questions about the long-term impact mount. We hear from an analyst about some potential risks the strikes could bring to the industry. What defines beauty for contemporary women? A young woman from Australia says she got a hint from an ancient Chinese poet. Find out more in our latest coverage of Entity's Chinese beauty pageant. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Wednesday, September 20th. President Biden called out human rights abuses in China's Xinjiang region at the UN General Assembly. Which was an important thing to do. The, the State Department calls it genocide, after all. Yeah, well, and then China covers for it by saying it's internal affairs and that there are cultural differences in different countries. Well, it's, it's quite ironic because that same country, China, sits on UN Security Council. Yeah, repression is not exactly security. And it's also ironic that they want to expand the Security Council, but they weren't even present at the 78th session of the UN General Assembly taking place this week, where a little bit of diplomatic tension unfolded. That's right. Topping the news this morning is that Israel's ambassador to the UN was detained at the summit in New York yesterday. That was for leaving to protest during Iranian leader Ebrahim Raisi's speech. Security personnel grabbed Ambassador Gilad Erdan when he walked out of, of the Assembly Hall. He left after holding up a picture of Masa Amini, whose death last year sparked waves of protests. Eyewitnesses say she was beaten to death by Iran's so-called morality police. She was arrested for not wearing a hijab, a law Iran recently increased the penalty for. Iran's leader was sanctioned by the U.S. after 5,000 Iranian political prisoners were massacred in 1988 and for the deaths of around 1,500 Iranian protesters in 2019. President Biden delivered his speech at the 78th session of the U.N. General Assembly yesterday. Addressing world leaders, Biden focused primarily on topics surrounding Ukraine, climate and China. Entities Cost Jimenez has a brief summary of the talks. President Joe Biden delivered his speech, emphasizing continued support for Ukraine. Biden said the U.S. remains committed to seeking a long-lasting peaceful solution and urged world leaders to join the U.S. in its mission. Russia alone, Russia alone bears responsibility for this war. Russia alone has the power to end this war immediately. And it's Russia alone that stands in the way of peace because the Russia's price for peace is Ukraine's capitulation, Ukraine's territory, and Ukraine's children. Biden's message was welcomed by Ukrainian President Zelensky. Ukraine has recently been in the spotlight after a flurry of high-level corruption scandals in the country. 
Questions also surfaced about continued financial and military aid to Ukraine. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy weighed in on the issue. Where's the accountability on the money we already spent? What is the plan for victory? I think that's what the American public wants to know. Biden also addressed the growing tension between the United States and communist China, calling out China's human rights abuses and vowing to push back on China's aggression. He also promoted initiatives to counter China's debt traps that target developing countries, but insisted... We are for de-risking, not decoupling with China. Adding that cooperation with China is needed on some issues. But we also stand ready to work together with China on issues where progress hinges on our common efforts. Nowhere is that more critical than accelerating the climate crisis, than, than the accelerating climate crisis. But as the president laid out his vision before world leaders, the UN's influence was called into question, as all four other leaders of the UN Security Council did not show up to attend the assembly. They include leaders of Russia, China, France and the UK. Other topics included the Agenda 2030 Sustainability Development Goals. NTD spoke to award-winning reporter and Epoch Times contributor Alex Newman, who says the UN has a very dangerous vision. It's an all-encompassing policy document that deals with every area of our lives. And so they're actually having this critical summit there. They've got, I think, 80 world leaders speaking at the summit. And uh, they're strategizing how to accelerate the implementation of these things uh, so, so that people have an understanding of how uh, uh, really dangerous these are. Right after they were adopted, the CCP, the uh, Chinese Communist Party, came out and bragged through all their propaganda organs that they played a crucial role in developing this. Biden is on a three-day visit to New York. He is set to meet with the heads of five Central Asian nations, as well as leaders of Israel and Brazil. Cost MNS. NTD News. The alleged security failures surrounding the offense of January 6th were the subject of debate on Capitol Hill yesterday. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the testimony of former Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund. Representative Barry Loudermilk kicked things off criticizing House Democrats. He says they spent millions to investigate the Capitol breach, but failed to investigate what he called the real security failures. The Democrats Select Committee never invited Chief Sun to testify during one of their primetime hearings, despite him being the chief of police on January 6. Perhaps that is because his testimony didn't fit with their preconceived narrative. Loudermilk also lambasted Democrats for championing the so-called defund the police movement in the months leading up to the breach. Former Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund says there was a failure to connect the dots on January 6, just like on 9-11. We now know that significant intelligence existed, that individuals had, were plotting to storm the Capitol building, target lawmakers, and discussing shooting my officers. And yet no intel agencies or units sounded the alarm. Sund says if the FBI and DHS had followed their policies and established practices, the events wouldn't have turned out as they did. We were blindsided. Intelligence failed operations. The January 6th attack at the Capitol was preventable. The former police chief says he kept running into roadblocks when requesting assistance from the National Guard. I then had to beg the Pentagon officials to send us help. I was repeatedly denied assistance by Army Lieutenant General Pyatt, citing concerns over optics of the National Guard on Capitol Hill. The D.C. National Guard, many of whom were standing within eyesight of the Capitol and whose motto is Capitol Guardians, would not arrive until almost 6 p.m., 
after the fighting and was over and the Capitol grounds secured. The New Jersey State Police arrived before they did. Representative Norma Torres criticized Republicans for what she called a direct effort to rewrite the events of that day. Torres singled out remarks she says were made by former President Trump, allegedly calling January 6th a beautiful day, and that J6 defendants were great patriots with love in their hearts. Do you agree, Mr. Stein, with the former president that it was a beautiful day on January 6th and that uh, those people that attacked your officers had love in their heart? It was not a beautiful day, ma'am. And did they, did they have love in their heart while they were attacking your officers, sir? I don't know what they had in their heart. Sund agreed that the actions of many on January 6th were criminal and that those who violated the law deserve to be held accountable. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, Hunter Biden is expected to plead not guilty to federal gun charges after being indicted on several counts of making false statements. And communist influence in elementary school, education experts urge lawmakers to take action. Why they say Americans should be concerned. Stay tuned for more after the break. It's good to have you back with us. We have more updates on the special counsel probe into Hunter Biden. The president's son will plead not guilty to federal gun charges against him. Hunter Biden's attorney said in a court filing on Tuesday that Hunter will plead not guilty to federal gun charges. Special counsel David Weiss last week charged him with three counts related to him lying about using illegal drugs when he bought a firearm. He faces two counts for making a false statement in the purchase of a firearm and one count of possession of a firearm by a person who is an unlawful drug user. Hunter Biden and prosecutors earlier had reached a plea deal over tax and gun charges, but it collapsed. Hunter Biden's attorney, Abe Lowell, also wrote a letter to U.S. Magistrate Judge Christopher Burke about a request. He said Hunter Biden wants his first court appearance to take place by video. The attorney argued that this is to minimize an unnecessary burden on government resources when Hunter travels to the courthouse. The attorney said Hunter is not seeking any special treatment in making this request and that the president's son will still attend other proceedings in person if necessary. And at the same time, the president's son is suing the IRS. He says it shouldn't have publicly shared his personal information. Now, we want to hear more about this and the big picture. We are now joined by John Malcolm. He's the vice president of Heritage Foundation's Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. It's really good to have you, John. Good morning. Now, I want to know from you first, let's talk about this lawsuit. What is Hunter Biden looking to gain from this? Um, what strategy do you see there? Sure. Well, this is actually the second lawsuit he's filed. He's also filed a lawsuit against an individual for allegedly improper divulging information that was on his laptop. And so far as I can tell, he'll, he'll have one of two purposes or both. Uh, one is to try to change the narrative so that he is seen uh, by the public as being a victim uh, of abusive practices rather than, you know, the perpetrator of crimes. And another, I suppose, is to try to intimidate people from coming forward and cooperating with either the House of Representatives or federal authorities in their ongoing probe. Uh, and to those people who have already cooperated, you know, to try to intimidate them into stopping that cooperation. Interesting points. Now, how is that working out for him, do you think? 
Well, I don't think it will work out well. I mean, he's just filed these lawsuits. I think that they border on the frivolous. Uh, but, you know, whether it will change the public's view of Hunter Biden remains to be seen. I don't think it will. And whether it will intimidate the people who have been cooperating uh, from continuing to do so, I don't think it'll stop them either. It may stop other people from coming forward, though, who may believe that if they decide to cooperate, that they are likely to be subjected to a lawsuit. Now, you um, you echo some of what the attorneys representing the whistleblowers call this lawsuit. They also call it frivolous. And they say that um, they actually never the IRS never really illegally released any confidential information. Now, what do you think there is any grounds here? How do you see um, this lawsuit playing out? Well, I think it is frivolous, although I don't think that Hunter Biden's goal is to try to actually win the lawsuit and recover money from the IRS. Uh, you know, the IRS has protocols for developing whistleblowers. A lot of this information was released uh, under an inquiry from the House of Representatives. The House members have the ability to conduct hearings and disclose information uh, that comes from those hearings. All of these regulations will be hashed out in court, I suppose, once this lawsuit proceeds. Uh, but I don't think it's going to change the outcome at all. The one thing it might do is deter others from coming forward. Mm, understood. Now, and on another note about the presidential election, how do you think this will impact his father, Joe Biden? Well, I don't think these lawsuits will impact Joe Biden. I think Hunter Biden's troubles may impact Joe Biden. I would note, though, that so far David Weiss has only filed gun charges. And, you know, as a factual matter, Hunter Biden is dead in the water on those charges. He may argue that the government has to continue with the plea agreement that they had entered into to let him have a diversion agreement. They may argue that the statute he's been charged under is unconstitutional. What has the real potential to impact Joe Biden are the tax charges and violations of the Foreign Agents Registration Act that that had you know dealt with Hunter Biden's rather shady dealings with corrupt individuals in foreign countries and receiving the assistance of his father at a time when his father was vice president. The whistleblowers have said that they were stopped from conducting that inquiry, were stopped from asking any questions about Joe Biden or other family members. Uh, but we'll see whether now those charges are filed and whether those charges and the House's impeachment inquiry, whether those have an impact on Joe Biden. All right, certainly something to keep our eyes on. Thank you so much, John Malcolm. I appreciate your time this morning. My pleasure. The House GOP will hold its first impeachment inquiry hearing into President Biden on Thursday next week. This comes on the heels of Speaker Kevin McCarthy directing three House committees to kick off the proceedings. According to a House Oversight Committee spokesperson, lawmakers will focus on the constitutional and legal questions surrounding the president's alleged involvement in his son Hunter's business dealings. The committee is also planning to subpoena the bank records of two Biden family members, Hunter Biden and the president's brother, James Biden. The subpoenas are expected to be filed as early as this week. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland is testifying before the House Judiciary Committee today. He's expected to push back on Republican criticism of the Justice Department's handling of indictments against Hunter Biden and former President Trump. That's based on experts, excerpts of Garland's prepared remarks shared with lawmakers yesterday. The hearing today will focus on if the DOJ has become politicized and weaponized under Garland's lead.
Garland says in his memo that the Justice Department works for the American people and that it's not its job to take orders from the president or Congress. The memo touts the agency's accomplishments, but makes no mention of any allegations around the department's treatment of its Hunter Biden probe. Today's hearing starts at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. From justice to academic freedom, China-funded programs in the U.S. schools could be indoctrinating American children. Education experts are saying these programs also pose national security threats. NTD's Arlene Richards covers a hearing that discusses the potential risks. An education subcommittee on Tuesday heard expert testimony on how the Chinese Communist Party is influencing U.S. K-12 schools. Representative Aaron Bean says the CCP influence is rampant in America's classrooms. Over 500 K-12 schools across the United States have allowed the CCP to establish itself in their halls under the guise of Confucius classrooms. But when you pull back the curtain on these cultural exchange centers, you find a CCP-backed agenda that undermines the principles upon which our education system is built. And he said the classrooms threaten America's national geopolitical and academic interests. They are explicitly organized by the CCP Politburo to project soft power on American students. A parent advocate said most of these programs went underground during the last administration, but... We found that over the past decade, over $17 million has flowed to 143 districts and private K-12 schools across 34 states in D.C. This is likely a low figure, given that both the U.S. State Department and the Senate have estimated hundreds more programs in existence. Representative Bobby Scott said this. We can provide students with an inclusive, accurate, and well-funded education without conspiracy theories that fuel anti-Asian discrimination. One of the witnesses explained anti-Asian discrimination. It has become a harmful pattern that when the United States has tensions with an Asian country, Asian Americans and immigrants face the backlash at home and become collateral damage. Perceived as not American, we too often are blamed for the actions of a foreign government or entity. Representative Lisa McLean shared her immediate concerns. So I'm here to represent our kids, the American children, the majority. That's my job. That's what I'm elected to do. After the hearings, Representatives Virginia Fox and Burgess Owens said Americans should be concerned about the CCP. They mean us ill and that they want to take over the world. If we have our, a foreign enemy that literally, uh, through lack of transparency, comes to our classrooms and teaches our kids things that are not true, then that should be a concern to all of us. In closing, Representative Dean said it's important to understand that it's not against the Chinese people, but it's against the aggressive nature of the Chinese Communist Party. Moving on to a story surrounding migration concerns, freight train company Ferramex halted operations on its northbound routes in Mexico yesterday. It cited a rising number of deaths and injuries of migrants using the cargo trains to travel to the U.S. border. Meanwhile, officials say the number of illegal crossings at the U.S.-Mexico border is growing. And today's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. Mexico's largest freight train company, Ferromex, temporarily suspended 60 trains on Tuesday. It said in a statement the number of migrants in its rail cars and rail yards had grown significantly in recent days to over 4,000 in some cities, and that there have been about a half dozen regrettable cases of injuries or deaths among train hoppers. 
Ferromex says the halted trains carry enough cargo to fill close to 2,000 tractor trailers, and that the stoppage will affect some international trade. The company says it ordered the halt to protect the physical safety of migrants while awaiting action by authorities to solve the problem. War correspondent and investigative reporter Michael Yon is documenting the Darien Gap between Colombia and Panama, a treacherous crossing for migrants heading to the U.S. He says the well-trodden routes are getting shorter and safer. In addition to the camps getting bigger, they're becoming more efficient and faster. So basically you've got the entire system as both shrinking in, in, in length and speeding up and growing in width. So in other words, it's, getting, it's growing in all dimensions. He estimates around 4,000 people pass through the gap each day, with migrants from countries as far away as China and Afghanistan. He says America will be destroyed if it doesn't change its border policies. This is easy, easy divide and conquer strategy, it's, and the United States has fallen for it. A Homeland Security official told CNN over 8,000 illegal immigrants were apprehended on Monday, stoking concerns it could be the early stages of a renewed surge of illegal immigration. City officials in El Paso, Texas, say they've helped more than 4,000 illegal immigrants in the last week. Most shelters are full, and some are sleeping outside. The city is using hotels to handle the overflow. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Texas police arrested an illegal immigrant from Peru and charged him with murder yesterday. That's in connection to a killing on Monday in Eagle Pass. U.S. Customs and Border Protection said the murder suspect crossed illegally into Texas in May and was released in the U.S. after promising to appear for a 2025 court date. And coming up, Chinese agencies are banning iPhones, but why? Could China suspect that Apple is being used to spy? Is this a form of projection given that Huawei has been in the spotlight over spying concerns? An analyst breaks this down after the break. Welcome back. U.S.-India relations may be put to the test. Canada is investigating the alleged involvement of Indian officials in the assassination of a Sikh leader in British Columbia in June. Both Canada and India have expelled each other's diplomats over the accusations. A White House National Security Council spokesperson says the Biden administration is deeply concerned as calling on India to cooperate with Canada's investigation. The U.S. recently began improving relations with India as a strategic move against China. An anonymous administration official told the Washington Post the White House is waiting for results from the Canadian investigation before commenting. And speaking of China, the country is alleging security incidents with iPhones. This as agencies in the country are barring staff from using them. Is this to promote Chinese devices over American ones? Where is the tech competition between the superpowers headed? I spoke with a senior editor at defense analysis site 1945.com to find out. Joining me now is geopolitical analyst Brandon Weikert, who's also the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. It is great to speak with you, Brandon. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. What are these security incidents with iPhones that China is referring to here? Uh, well, they're they're probably concerned about the ability of China to I'm sorry of the, the ability of Apple to be used by the U.S. government uh, to spy. This has been something that the Chinese have uh, have have always concerned themselves about that American products like the iPhone can be penetrated by American intelligence for surveillance and eavesdropping purposes. But it should be noted that the, the Chinese are projecting here, I think, because. 
all of their technology can be used by China to spy on whoever's using it. And in the case of Huawei, we know that Britain, for instance, was very pro-Huawei 5G. And as it turned out, it was a real concern for the Five Eyes Intelligence Network, precisely because Huawei could use that to spy for China. It is interesting looking at the parallels here, because, of course, there are many concerns about trapdoors being included in the code for TikTok. Now, what do you think China is doing this for? Is it just to promote their Huawei products? Well, I think that's part of it. Um, I, I think this that's probably the biggest issue here is Huawei, they've been struggling, and Huawei is trying to compete with Apple, which is probably the, one of the best technology companies in the world right now. They have a GDP of a small country. Um, and so Huawei being a state enterprise, yeah, they're trying to compete. They're also in China trying to display strength. Right now, the tech war has really hurt them in terms of the computer chip bans. Many of those chips are needed for smartphones. Um, and so because the United States, going back to the Trump administration, uh, was banning those chips, uh, Huawei is trying to show that they can indigenously produce at least seven nanometer chips, which are uh, putting them about five years behind the Americans and their allies in terms of chip production. So this is a demonstration of force as well as they're trying to display their own, you know, product. Right, Brandon, because, of course, Apple saw a huge drop, 5%, when yeah. they announced that partial ban. And, of course, as you mentioned, Huawei is struggling. Where is the chess match between China and the U.S. and the tech sphere headed? Well, it's headed for, uh, right now, a total showdown. So there's some debate right now in Washington, D.C. I was just up there last week briefing the Pentagon, and there, there isn't a consensus on, for instance, whether those new 7-nanometer chips that Huawei's displaying is having indigenously produced in China. Um, there's no agreement yet as to whether those were actually produced legitimately or if they're basically, they were stockpiled before the bans went into effect. The problem is, though, and I keep telling the Pentagon, we should just assume that China's not dumb and that they're very innovative and if they really put their minds to something they can catch up to us so we need to start getting out ahead of them and that's where this is headed less bans less focus on banning and more focus on getting American indigenous innovation and production going that's where we need to go and that is some great geopolitical analysis there Brandon Weikert thank you for your time thank you for having me and now we're heading to Jane Werrell in the UK for some short headlines from around the world. Morning, Evelyn and Kevin. Ethnic Armenians in Azerbaijan's breakaway region of Nagorno-Karabakh agreed to a Russian proposal for a ceasefire this morning. That's 24 hours after Azerbaijan began an offensive to take control of the enclave that killed dozens and injured hundreds. They said the offensive was retaliation after some of Azerbaijan's troops were killed in attacks from the mountainous region. Israeli troops raided the Jenin refugee camp in the northern West Bank yesterday, killing three people and wounding some 30 others. That's according to Palestinian health officials. A fourth Palestinian was killed by Israeli fire in separate unrest in the Gaza Strip. The Israeli military has stepped up its efforts in what it calls a crackdown on Palestinian militants. The United Nations is urging the Taliban government to stop torture and protect the rights of detainees. The UN assistance mission in Afghanistan said today it has documented more than 1,600 cases of human rights violations committed by authorities 
during arrests and detentions of people. It said the torture aimed at extracting confessions and other information. Guatemalan President Alejandro Giamatti said at the UN yesterday he would hand the presidency to President-elect Bernardo Arevalo in January. His comment was a response to an earlier suggestion by the Brazilian president about the risks of a coup after last month's election. Last week, the top prosecutor's office raided electoral facilities and opened sealed ballots. Well, that's all from me. Back to you both. Thank you very much, Jane. Interesting developments. Um, apparently, Azerbaijan and Iranian forces are actually set to meet on uh, for talks on Thursday. Yes, hopefully they can come to a peaceful resolution of the tensions there. Yes. We have more coverage for you coming up. Robots from China don't strike. That's the perspective of a risk analyst on the UAW strike. What does he mean by that? We'll hear from him in just a minute. And police say they have another teen suspect in custody for the cold-blooded hit-and-run of a morning cyclist. Welcome back. A tentative contract deal has been reached between Ford and Canadian Union Unifor. The deal, if approved, will allow Ford to avert a strike and keep 5,000 union members on the job. Contract details are still unavailable and union members must still vote to ratify the contract. Ford Canada said they respect the ratification process and will not discuss the specifics of the tentative agreement. And in the U.S., 600 Ford workers were laid off from their jobs at a Michigan assembly plant. The layoffs are being blamed on the UAW strike. Ford officials said the components built by the laid-off workers use materials that must be e-coded for protection. E-coding is completed in the paint department, which is on strike. More layoffs could be coming. One recent contract proposal has Stellantis possibly closing 18 factories. Now we're going to hear a unique perspective on how the United Auto Workers strikes might affect the means of production and investors. Anders Core, the principal of Core Analytics and the publisher of the Journal of Political Risk, joins us live. Good morning, Anders. Great to have you with us. Morning. Your article is titled Robots from China Don't Strike. Can you explain this? Well, the UAW strike um, is really putting the U.S. auto industry in a difficult position. Um, unfortunately, I mean, everyone would love to have high wages, but uh, UAW, what they're asking for is, I mean, what they have been getting, according to industry sources, about $60 an hour on average when considering other labor at costs like uh, benefits. Um, what they're asking for is about $80 an hour uh, on those, in those terms, that's not what the workers actually get paid per hour. It's including all their benefits. Um, and what workers in Mexico make is about 10 or $11 an hour. So you can see that if they're asking for eight times what they make in Mexico, there's an incentive for the auto industry or competitor companies from Japan or China or South Korea to go to less expensive labor regions like Mexico uh, to get their cars built. So I see what you mean, Anders. And offshoring is definitely a concern here. To put this in perspective, the pilots got about a 46% pay raise over 46 years, so it's not unheard of. And then about a third of a million UPS workers were pushed to the brink, and they got about a 48%. But let's look at the big picture here. 
Where do you think the strike is going to affect investors? Well, I mean, investors in these companies, uh, in GM, Ford, and Stellantis, uh, will lose, basically lose out because along with the workers, if the factories close down, the uh, stock price goes down, the jobs are lost. Um, so this is, I mean, this is the effect of essentially price fixing, I would argue, by the unions, um, which of course is, I mean, it's an, un, it's a, it, it, people don't normally think about uh, union bargaining or collective bargaining in price fixing terms, but uh, economists can analyze uh, union activity as kind of a cartel of labor or a monopoly of labor power for a particular uh, factory. So I, I think it's, you know, it just, it has this, these negative effects that I don't think the union is really taking into account. Definitely important to look at both sides here. And you talk about monopolies. Can you support your stance that the union's power to shut down markets, like the power of monopolies, is illiberal? Well, I would argue it's illiberal. I mean, in addition to what I said, uh, if it drives uh, production out of the United States and into China, for example, what, which is kind of what we've seen. I mean, the deindustrialization of America since the 70s has been a lot of industries moving to China in large part because labor costs are cheaper in China. And part of the reason why labor costs are so high in the United States is that the unions are pushing, pushing wages up beyond what the market can bear. And I mean, th these are just economic realities that I don't think the unions are really taking into account. So Anders Core, the principal of Core Analytics, really appreciate talking to you. Thank you. In Philadelphia, the acting president of Temple University died suddenly yesterday after collapsing on stage. Joanne Epps was 72 years old. Epps was at a memorial service on campus when she fell ill. She collapsed on stage and was taken to Temple University Hospital. According to the school, she was pronounced dead at the hospital. Her cause of death isn't yet unveiled. Temple University said in a statement she spent nearly 40 years of her life serving this university and it goes without saying her loss will reverberate through the community for years to come. Before becoming the acting president, Epps served as dean of the university's law school and provost. Another teen suspect has been taken into custody for fatally mowing down a retired police chief who was riding his bike. The Las Vegas Police Department says both juveniles are facing murder charges for the death of Andreas Probst. Yeah, 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 get his ass. <laughs> the police chief called the act cowardly and criticized the juveniles for leaving the man for no. dead on the side of the road. 64-year-old Probst was hit at about 6 in the morning. One suspect was taken into custody on the same day as the hit and run. Police say the same two juveniles also struck another man on a bicycle who was 72 years old before sideswiping a car and then fatally striking Probst. The suspects filmed the deadly collision. Police stated they got video from a school resource officer who received it from a student. And police say tattoos and other videos helped them link the second suspect to the murder. He also allegedly posted the video on social media. The daughter of the slain man says her father's life was robbed by two individuals who do not believe that the lives of others matter. 
And switching up gears here, we're going to take you to some of the latest headlines. Over two pounds of fentanyl were found at the New York City daycare where a one-year-old baby died last Friday. A total of four toddlers were apparently sickened by the fentanyl, including the one who died. The daycare center owner and her tenant are now facing murder charges. The two defendants face a maximum sentence of life in prison and a minimum sentence of 20 years. The family of the suspect accused in the recent ambush shooting of an L.A. deputy is speaking out. According to KTLA in Los Angeles, the family of Kevin Salazar says he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. They also said he's off his medications. Salazar's mother spoke to the L.A. Times. She said in the past she called law enforcement asking for help when her son refused to take his medications. She was told there was nothing that they could do since he was an adult. Officials in Montana are warning people not to eat fish from the Yellowstone River. The state issued an advisory for all fish species near the site of a June train derailment. The derailment in Stillwater County caused high amounts of various toxins to be found in local fish species. Nonprofit group Students for Fair Admissions is suing West Point over its race-based admissions policy. A recent Supreme Court ruling said universities can't use race as the basis for admission. Military academies are the sole exception. West Point requires each class to have a certain percentage of minority students. It does leave one scratching their heads why military academies would be the only exception. Good questions. And they didn't exactly ask for a special exemption, right? Right. They just wrote the court saying that these affirmative action admissions would help the military leadership be more diverse if they have it in colleges as well as military academies. Right. And we have more for you coming up. Investors awaiting the Fed's key decision on interest rates. Will today's meeting bring a pause in hikes? NTD Business host Don Ma has the details after this short break. Welcome back. Bankrupt crypto firm FTX sued the parents of founder Sam Bankman-Fried. They allege that Stanford professors Joseph Bankman and Barbara Fried used the company to enrich themselves at the expense of FTX's customers. The lawsuit alleges that Bankman and Fried accepted a $10 million cash gift and luxury property in the Bahamas. They also pushed FTX to donate millions to Stanford University. This was all while FTX itself was on the brink of bankruptcy. And today we'll conclude the two-day policy meeting at the Federal Reserve and all eyes are on the central bank and Chair Jerome Powell for the anticipated interest rate decision later this afternoon. So here with us to discuss is Entity Business host Don Ma. Hi Don, what should we expect from the Fed today? Well, Evelyn, uh, I think a question that almost everyone wants answered is whether the Fed will again raise interest rates or will they keep it the, keep it the same? And the central bank has raised rates to a 20-year high in July. Let's keep that in mind. But currently, you know, the expectation is that officials uh, will not raise rates at this meeting. Uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell will host a post-meeting conference. And during that, 
he he'll likely say you know something along the lines of that uh, you know inflation remains high um, and they're going to leave the door open for another interest rate increase. You know he doesn't want to sound too soft in his language, Evelyn. He wants us. He needs us to know that he's extremely determined to do anything necessary to cool inflation. Hmm. That's good insights. And now about what what about the investors? What do they want to hear from Powell during the post meeting news conference? Yeah, you know, investors will be looking for clues uh, whether the Fed is done hiking rates. They, they may skip a rate uh, increase this time, but uh, we're still looking to the future because financial markets are already looking to the next meeting. Uh, they currently see a 69% chance the Fed will pause interest rate increases at the next meeting. Uh, and the reasons why, Evelyn, investors are so interested in what the Fed does is because when the Fed stops hiking rates, then what comes next is rate cuts. And that's really what uh, investors want because lower rates is good for the stock market and companies can earn more money. So at the end of the day, it's, it's no surprise that it's all about money. Uh, the, the Fed's interest rate hikes does affect the stock market. So, so that's why the Federal Reserve has been in center stage now for the past couple of years. And that's why we're talking about interest rates. Hmm. Now let's see if that when and when we will see those rate cuts. Now, anything else you have for us, Don, today? Sure, just a couple more updates. Uh, healthcare workers in California are getting a pay raise. State lawmakers approved a bill setting the minimum wage at $25 an hour. The bill aims to increase wages for workers while not overloading financially troubled hospitals. The bill allows some facilities to apply for a pause uh, on paying the minimum wage if they can document financial distress. And other than that, uh, mark your calendars uh, because this Saturday is National Public Lands Day. And that means you can get in free at any the around 400 U.S. national parks. Entrance is free, but you'll still have to pay for camping or guided tours. The National Park Service has five different days each year where entrance fees are waived. Uh, but other than these two updates, Evelyn, that's all from me this morning. Wow, awesome. I'm actually making my note here right now. Thank you, Don, host of NTD Business. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. And coming up, beauty is inner serenity and composure. An Australian girl says she got that message from traditional Chinese culture. We have the story of Lisa Mu, candidate for the NTD Chinese beauty pageant. That's coming up. Welcome back. A graduate student in engineering with a soft spot for classical literature and art. A young woman from Australia brings her vision of beauty to the NTD International Chinese Beauty Pageant. She says her passion all started with a yearning for traditional Chinese culture. Here's the story of Lisa Mu. I'm an engineering student who enjoys literature, history, music, and art. I pursued both my undergraduate and master's degrees in the field of engineering. I think the concept of beauty is quite philosophical because it involves the question of whether beauty is objective or subjective. In fact, everyone has their own definition of beauty. I think ultimately it's the belief that words should come from a sincere heart. Only then can there be a pure and harmonious spirit. In other words, it embodies an aspiration for morality and propriety. Beauty is in fact an outward expression and extension of your inner self. 
In my opinion, the NTD competition highly values your inner self. After looking into it more, I found that the NTD beauty pageant is centered around morality, righteousness, propriety, benevolence, and faithfulness. It will help people understand the beauty of traditional Chinese culture and lead people back to a path that returns to tradition. I think that's a very meaningful aspect of it. When preparing for this pageant, I delved into some real historical figures and events, including poetry and songs such as the works of the Chinese poet Du Fu. In his old age, the poet encountered misfortunes like a leaking roof during a night of rain. Under such circumstances, he wrote, If I had a big house with a thousand rooms, I could shelter all the world's poor, and the wind and rain would not trouble me, and I would be as steadfast as a mountain. This is his kind of mindset, a very serene attitude that remains unfazed when faced with adversity. Before participating in this pageant, I always wanted to control all the factors in my life. But now, I can strive to do well with what's in front of me because the future is always unknown. By maintaining a humble and patient attitude, I will be able to go further. If I encounter obstacles, it's an opportunity to learn because I believe it's only through challenges that people can grow. It's an active growing process rather than a passive one. By being in this pageant, what I want to express the most is a yearning for traditional culture. There are people who, for the sake of what's in their hearts, their beliefs, and their sense of righteousness, continue to persevere. So I feel that within my own capabilities, though I may not attain it, my heart aspires to it. These traditional values are what history has left for us, and they are what we pass on to the future. Lisa Mu, along with other Miss NTD hopefuls, will head to upstate New York for the big event next week. The 40 finalists will take to the stage at the SUNY Purchase Performing Arts Center to compete for the glitzy tiara. Tickets are now on sale at MissNTD.com. That's right, and it really just seems like everybody we've met so far has held themselves to such high standards. Yes, those are some really great values that they're promoting there. And I just want to issue one correction. It's not that Pence was saying that the strikes themselves are a benefit to Beijing. It's that they're a manifestation of Biden's push for EVs, which are leading to the strikes, and that would also benefit China. Gotcha. Thank you so much for this correction. And at this point, we would like our program here. That's all for today. Thanks for watching. You can write us at goodmorning at ntd.com if you have any feedback. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.